Hi, my name's Steve Wishart, and I'm the IB World Schools Manager for Australasia at the International Baccalaureate. In this second part of episode one, Remote Learning Pros and Cons, What Do We Maintain and What Do We Learn From? We will hear from IB educators about the challenges faced by students while learning remotely and ways in which these can be overcome. In this part, we are joined by Kevin House, Director of the Institute for Learning and Research at Dulwich College International, Nick Olchen, Deputy Head of Campus at United World College Southeast Asia, Frank Bratcher, Head of School at Goldcrest International, and Sita Murthy, Director of Education at Silver Oaks International Schools, President of the Heads Association of IB World Schools India, and she is also the Vice Chairperson of CBSE Schools Association Hyderabad India. We looked at the beginning about the big pictures within the community and then we got into the teaching and learning aspect of it. I'd like us to start with the teaching and learning challenges. There's some comments about, you know, for some students it wasn't, it's not a great way of learning, remote learning. They are not comfortable with so much independence, they're not comfortable with so few people. Some subjects perhaps need a different type of learning. There's comment that language learning is seriously disadvantaged with remote learning. There are some students who are disadvantaged in these instances. So we're interested in the first half to really look at those. And then in the second half of it, I want us to pull back again to the big picture and think about, so what are you seeing as the big themes in education, the bigger problems or the bigger opportunities to change that were coming out of this? So let's start firstly with what things you're seeing or the challenges that have to be overcome as a result of what we've been going through or some learning that's happened through this. There are many, many challenges. I think the biggest challenge is to become very flexible. Yes. When you're doing a timetable and then a teacher calls you 10 minutes before that and said they've turned all the electricity in my building for three hours and my phone network is very slow. And then we have to rush together a new timetable and call another teacher. Things like that, which I think keep it moving, that's been a challenge. You mentioned language learning, however, and I actually have something to say because many of our students are really second language English speakers because we're in India. And our IB diploma English teachers actually felt that the online learning allowed the students a greater competency to speak up. And I even joined in on some of the IB English Lang and Lit classes. And to some extent, I would say there were richer debates happening. One thing the teacher would do, she would actually put the kids into small modules. So she'd work with five or six kids at a time. And they felt more open to be able to express themselves, which maybe when they're in the class of 18 or 19 students, those who are more challenged by English or have a more limited vocabulary tend to be more silent. So that's something that I actually noticed. But I think what it did, it propelled the teacher to adapt to it. But uh, dealing with technology and frequent internet outages and things like that is a challenge for us. Yeah, thank you. It's interesting to hear the flip side of the comment on language learning. Anyone else with other topics? Nick? I'd say, you know, of course, some students didn't flourish under it. And of course, there were some students for many reasons. It might have been technology. It might have been for us. We have several students in different time zones, you know, things which are, make it very difficult. But I'm a bit hesitant in terms of at least the narrow learning piece itself to say that it was a bad experience. I mean, you know, this idea of desirable difficulties is an interesting one. And for students who've been used to having, you know, a system, they turn up, the teacher's there, it's delivered, 
and they're required to have some more autonomy and independence. Some of those we could say perhaps didn't flourish, maybe their grade fell a bit, maybe they didn't turn up, maybe they found it difficult, but it could have been the best experience, just the experience they needed because it was all just a bit straightforward for them. Now, I, I, it's not that I haven't got sympathy for their experience and if they were under you know, pressure, then that's very difficult to square when we're concerned about well-being. But sometimes, you know, the place that you grow the most is when you are under the most pressure. So I've had some students come back who said, we really struggled with remote learning. We found it difficult. I'm so happy to be back. I'm so motivated. And, you know, now I know what I've got. So could this have been the best thing that ever happened to them? I don't know. That's a tough thing to say to anybody who's in a bit of a hole at the time. But I'm a bit wary of jumping to the, these kids didn't flourish. I think we need to look at the longer picture. And I don't think it's obvious who did and didn't flourish yet for the students that I know best anyway. I think it's very much something that's going to be context specific. And in some schools and some socioeconomic groups, it's going to be perhaps much easier to take advantage of the challenges that have gone through. There are other groups that are going to struggle enormously, but we'll come back to those later. Kevin, Sita, any ideas from your perspective so far? Do you think that there have been challenges with subject content knowledge or skill development that has come out of this that needs to be addressed? More than challenges, I think there are many lessons, I would say, darling, in this entire thing. I have been saying from the beginning that there's a lot of demystifying that happened, a lot of mythbusters that happened. Where language is concerned, let me say this briefly. Many of our first graders who have not even come to school yet, they're learning from home now. They've not seen the classroom. They've only seen the teacher on screen till now. And it's in first grade that we start a second language, a chosen language that they learn. And it really sometimes makes it very challenging that how do you start the second language, you know, when they're all sitting there in their respective homes and the teachers are alone here. So we came up with this idea of team teaching. And in sometimes we have even invited parents to be a team with us in this language learning, made them into smaller groups, send them into breakout sessions. If we had to teach French here or Spanish there or, you know, regional languages here, we send them into smaller groups. We use many apps for reading skills. And I think most of all, while we ensured that we found ways for teaching and learning, we learned that there is something called resource myopia, resource metropia. So we started seeing resources can be procured from anywhere. We don't have to really order them on Amazon, but we can procure them from people around us. And there are so many who are willing to help us. So language learning, was very successful like that. I already told you about the curriculum part of it. We just put aside the prescribed topics in the back seat and we brought the ATLs into the forefront and that has made the exciting, uh, entire excitement in the learning. So for us, it's been a very nice experience, I would say. It's great to hear of the things that you're achieving from the challenges and the lessons learned. And it supports what, what Frank was saying before about that need for flexibility, that openness that's coming out yeah. of teachers that are having to learn. Kevin. To echo something Frank mentioned earlier, I think we found that knowledge transfer for teachers was challenging. In the assessment space, many teachers, even though they, let's say, knew best practices around formative and effective feedback in time for kids, they were still really disturbed in certain cases, particularly as you got back to, and again, this is a backstory in our conversation today, the credential industry, as it were, those teachers in particular felt, I'm not sure where kids are. I'm really struggling to know if my 
formative or my effective feedback is giving me a good steer on where they actually are. And for me, that leads to my second point, which is as a species, we do tend to drift into a dealing with change by deficit rather than seeing the opportunities as a lot of, ah, we are missing a lot. Things are being lost here. You know, you see a lot of the rhetoric around the exams, for example. We fill those schedules in our system, year 11, year 13 kids, with a whole range of wonderful learning activities that we'd never, ever have done before. It was an immense opportunity. Yet, of course, it's hard as a group to move forwards with embracing all the excitement and looking at it reflectively and seriously to see where was the value to always look over your shoulder and go oh we're missing something we're losing something so that deficit thing i think was difficult and the transferability of skills that teachers knew that they had but they couldn't see the transfer you also commented on something that that assessment aspect of how do you assess remote learning, how do you assess, in fact, how do you sit back and how do you assess learning at all? It's making schools and teachers rethink this in a big way as well, given globally the number of organisations, countries that have said no exams this year. So everyone is saying, so what happens next? I think this sort of leads us into the last section here, which is if I can ask you to sit back a bit, pull back and see the big picture because the IB is a global organisation, the schools are around the world. There are so many different things happening in so many different countries and there are challenges to be faced because of the impact of COVID. So I'm wondering what are some of the themes that you see that might be coming through? I mean, how are groups of schools dealing with some of the issues? How are countries dealing with some of the issues? Kenya, for an example, has decided that everyone in the country will repeat the year next year. How is that going to impact students and teachers and school communities? Other countries have closed the school year early because they didn't want to allow for the disadvantage of those students who didn't have Wi-Fi and technology to be exacerbated by those who did. And so they said, okay, so everyone's out of school for a super long, hot summer. Fine, but then when everyone comes back, how are those challenges overcome? What are your schools doing in a way, or what organisations that you know, or countries that you know, what's happening here to overcome some of these inequities that have been exacerbated by this? And, and it could be in your own schools too, that it is it's students that are where perhaps with special needs that have had more difficulty getting access to support. Or is it students who have not had parents at home to support them while they've been learning because the parents have been working or essential workers and outside? I would like to share the challenge that we are going to face in India now. So Indian education system, you have the central education system and the state education system. Many of the states have started their school year, whereas the central schools have started in April. And even those who started in April, 80% were online, 20% did not have access to online. So what happens to this academic year is a big question. Though right now we just don't want to take that bitter pill, but we are concerned deep inside. When will this academic year conclude? Typically for a central board, it concludes in next year, March. But it can't be happening because 20% of the students of central board did not have school online access. Uh. Whereas the state boards have not yet started. They just started last week. So everybody has to be going to the same university at the end of it. So I have a feeling 
this academic year is going to be very, very challenging for those who pass out of the schools and looking for university admissions. I guess what we're saying here then is there's a challenge we can see, but we can't see the answer just yet. In the big picture, you know, I think you're absolutely right. The inequalities have been in many cases magnified and exacerbated. I mean, really what we're drawing attention to is the problem that is systemically there and is much bigger. I mean, without COVID, the inequalities were there. I'm not sure that I would say that COVID has changed them dramatically. It's drawn our attention to a facet of them. But I think we all know already the difference between those places which have extremely good resources and those places which are under-resourced, those students who are born into societies with life chances which are very different to those born into other societies. I don't mean actually just between societies, within a society, those who are born into one echelon and those who are born into another echelon. So I think it's fabulous that we're talking about these things. And while education will do what it can do, and, and there are a variety of things there, I also just say, you know, I hope this draws our attention to the Gini coefficient within all our organizations, however big or small, and globally and nationally as well. It's one of the great problems of our time up there with climate crisis and so on, but it's not talked about in the same breaths. This is one manifestation of it, and I hope it's going to draw you know, the attention and the spotlight on what's absolutely a global challenge that we have to solve. I think that's very much happening. I think you're right there. I think it's made us understand how small is the lens we use to scrutinize what learning is there is no parity of esteem with what we recognize in learning there is many things that a child will learn in their life in their early life that we do not recognize in the systems that we've built i think it raises question marks around what we're credentialing what we're recognizing i think it raises big question marks about the importance of this world in which in the private sector particularly we're saying that the only tracks the university track some of the bigger companies are coming out now and saying, look, we don't really want the graduates. It's become an environment where, and the IB diploma plays to this. I would say, actually, I'm quite happy to come out and say the IB diploma is a legacy product. The other IB curricula are far more innovative and more attention needs to be paid to them. What's wrong with putting a PYP framework into a high school environment? The credential industry is the only thing that stops you doing it. Everybody knows that's some of the richest learning. Everyone knows that's some of the richest pedagogies, but yet we still handcuff ourselves to a system that's based on looking at learning at graduation like it's the NASDAQ or the FTSE index and league tabling and determining kids' lives and the economization of knowledge. It's something that we do have to fight. I think the equity and access agenda also is a massive one. We're now at the cusp where really access to digitization will become a human right and we know how human rights play out there'll be whole swathes of the world where they won't get that access and it's essential that they have it thank you kevin frank i'm actually very much in agreement with what kevin has said i believe that the crisis actually shows the dichotomy of difference between the privileged and the underprivileged all over the world i also think that i believe that this is going to only facilitate changes in higher and in secondary education I said this in another IB a podcast about two months ago that I actually believe in 20 years, the exam regime will be a 20th century event that is no longer relevant in the 21st century. I think this present crisis is actually pushing that forward. Universities, of course, their decisions are often financial, but universities are making decisions as to admissions of students. And in doing that, they are altering ways in which they're admitting students. 
as an historian, which is what I am, once you start altering a system, it starts to be altered. You don't start to change something and think you're going to bring the Anshan regime back. I don't think people realize that I do believe the days of SATs and the days of IB exams, as we saw them before, and those numbers are going to play the same role in the next 10 years as they played in the last 10 years. So I think that could be positive, but any period of change is going to create, of course, divisions and crises and instabilities. But this is promoting changes. It will happen. Thank you, Frank. Yeah, I think that the comment that it was good that this time has highlighted, perhaps to the extent that we're talking about these challenges, we've been forced to confront the fact that education in the traditional form doesn't work. I mean, we've been saying it for a long time, but not doing much about it. But here, we've had a system that has actually cracked. The structures we've had, they can no longer continue. Schools are not 25 kids in a classroom at desks every day, five days a week. It is a very different focus on learning and may causing a potential for a revolution. I guess the challenge is what we're going to do with it. The point is, isn't it, exactly as Frank says, it's a systemic piece. So the reason we've been talking about it so long and nothing's happened is because schools, as one cog in the system, schools have a limited capacity for change. Because if this cog doesn't fit in the system, the system will spit it out and those schools will largely fail, close, not be attractive, whatever. But now the system is changing and the universities are the big driver in terms of driving the system, the big push from the outside of the system. So once that changes, I think Frank's absolutely right, that the change will be accelerating because the systemic drivers will change and they will open up possibilities for conversation, which have already been happening. It's not like they have to start. There's already groundswells of opinion and thought and movement, and it will just fill the space that's been opened. So I think there's the potential, you know, the iceberg is melting, not just in terms of climate change, but just in terms of uh, educational possibilities for the next 10 or 15 years, I think. Sita mentioned Ken's passing, and I know I think many of us probably went back and looked at some of his texts or some of his TED Talks and so forth. I remember going back to the 2006 TED Talk, and in there he talks about really what we've done is create an environment where, in that notion of parity of esteem around learning, what we've created is a, the academy navel-gazing. So it creates a school system in which the pinnacle of one's high school career is to go into the academy and therefore feed itself and I think for all of the change we're seeing and we want in schools the bottleneck is still the university systems and I mean Steve's question around well, what would the universities do I think part of the problem is many of the universities in different parts of the world rely on either private or, or public funding the public funded environments have always been traditionally hugely conservative, the United Kingdom being an ideal case in point where credential capital there is really locked down. It's a closed shop, it's the Bank of England of credentialing, and really to try and break into that market with an alternative credential, you've got to do an awful lot of heavy lifting in terms of recognition. Whereas in the US, where obviously it's a lot more private-based universities, you get a lot more flex, a lot more innovation, I mean, obviously, there's obviously issues around what happens in that undergraduate degree, but the reality is there is definitely more flex there. I think you'll start to see a continuum of universities where the Russell groups and the Oxbridges and the Ivy Leagues will hold on to what they've got at the top table for as long as they possibly can. But you will see to start to see more proliferation in what they'll accept in other universities. And I think you'll start to see maybe not glacial, I hope, but you will start to see change at university level. Thank you. We're coming close to the end of our time. I'm wondering if you would each just like to have a concluding comment of the ups and downs, positives, challenges of what you see, the big themes in COVID. 
Winston Churchill said, make every crisis into an opportunity. I think that's what we schools, we teachers are doing it. And if we don't make it into an opportunity, 20 years from now, we would look back and feel we lost an opportunity to bring change, to bring the transformation. But as Nicholas was saying that it's universities that have to drive the change, I would think it is a policy making. It is at a, at a government level that there has to be a policy change. The iceberg has to melt from there because even universities are bound by the system that a policy defines. So my feeling is, I sincerely hope that this crisis defreezes the policy barriers at a government level and everywhere in the world will begin to see newer possibilities for progressive education. Thank you so much, Cesar. Crisis comes from a Greek word that it can mean judgment or decision. And in a sense, you're judged by the crisis. And I think we as schools and we as educators, how we come through this and how we promote change and development, I think will be our crisis. It will be our judgment as educators in the early part of the 21st century. This is our crisis, our judgment. Thank you, Frank. That's a very thought-provoking and challenging comment to give out there to our leaders, isn't it? Make sure you're taking it. We all face the schools. And normally, I think we find that you know, life goes on and education's one part of you know, the system and work's another part and we go on doing our business. There are very few things that really bring us all together that we all face the same challenges together. COVID has been, in my experience, pretty unique that it's really brought us an opportunity to address the system with stakeholders who normally have a stake in the system. The scope of it is not just because it's a health and safety issue, but because it has been so prevalent everywhere. It's very rare that we as educators can make a change which the parents really get, but they'll really get this because the kids were at home for three months. So it's a real opportunity. It doesn't say which direction we should drive the educational bus in, but it does say, I think, that the road is far more open than it's been for many, many years at the moment. Thank you. Absolutely exciting. Much as I love to evangelise, I guess it's a word of caution in that the Conservatives with a small c back to Sita's point about policy, and they're often in that camp, will want to return to the old regime. And there will be that dip. In that moment of relief, when everyone comes back together as a community, that's the time where they will want to pull it back. And us as educators owe it to the students that we serve and the families that we work with to make sure that they don't pull it back. So I guess it's that dip. It's that once it's back to some form of new normal, be careful the new normal doesn't begin with a C. Thank you so much. Can I thank all of you so much for your contributions today? I think we've talked about and raised a lot of the big themes that people are talking about at the moment, but also ended on such a positive note of we've got to grasp this as an opportunity to make sure that learning and teaching improves into the future. I thank you. I look forward to seeing you all in future podcasts. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to our podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Be sure to check out more episodes of IB Voices on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Join us next time for more insights from our IB community.